It can sometimes be easy to take modern medicine for granted. We don't have to visit an oracle or a priest to diagnose an illness, and popping to a pharmacy is certainly less messy than sacrificing a chicken to read its innards. Yet the ancient Greeks and Romans had Asclepius. But who was this god? Let's find out in this week's episode of Fabulous Folklore. Hello there and welcome to Fabulous Folklore, the podcast for all things folklore, occult and just a bit weird. I'm your host, Icy Sedgwick, blogger, fantasy author and your guide into these rather mysterious realms. I've got some rare things to show you, so come on in, take a look around, but be careful not to touch anything. These things sometimes bite. Well, hello there and welcome back to Fabulous Folklore with me, your host, Icy Sedgwick. It is the 1st of August and it is Saturday, so that means we've got another brand new episode of Fabulous Folklore to see us through until next week. Now, this month we are going to be looking at all things health and medicine and healing. And I must admit that when I originally scheduled this in, I had rather hoped that the situation with the pandemic might have been a little bit better. So it may seem like a bit of an odd choice of topic, but I hope that you'll forgive me that anyway, and I hope that you'll still find it interesting anyway. And we are starting with Asclepius, who is both the ancient Roman and Greek god of medicine. And he doesn't really appear in as many stories as the other gods that you'd recognise, like Jupiter and Neptune and Poseidon and all sorts. And he is one of the few gods who was actually simply imported to Rome from Greece, which explains why he's called Asclepius in Greece and Asclepius in Rome. But the interesting reason why I've included him is quite a lot of gods do have healing under their remit, but very few of them are specifically medicine, and that is specifically what Asclepius is for. So that is why we're going to go and meet him. So we are going to start, as these stories nearly always do, with his origin story. And Aesculapius is the son of the god Apollo and Coronis. And in some stories she's a nymph, and in other stories she's just a mortal woman. And myths are many things, but they're rarely consistent. Now, either way, Apollo sent a white raven to her as a guardian while she was carrying his son, but instead it ended up passing on the bad news that she'd been unfaithful while pregnant with our hero, Apollo's twin sister Artemis, goddess of hunting, was so furious that she actually shot Coronis with her arrows. And she also removed Asclepius while Coronis lay on her funeral pyre. So Apollo then gave the baby to Chiron, who is the mighty centaur that you sometimes come across in Greek mythology. And he essentially raised him and taught him all that he knew about healing. So medicine and all that kind of thing was really embedded in Asclepius from a really early age. Now, he did discover various cures, he learned about the healing properties of plants, and he basically then potted around healing people to the best of his ability. And according to some legends, his healing prowess grew too far, because he could even bring the dead back to life. Now, in one version of the myth that I found, Asclepius actually learned how to prevent death, obviously with his healing abilities, but then he also learned how to resurrect the dead. And it was actually this part, not the prevention, but the resurrection part that really angered Zeus. So he threw a thunderbolt at Asclepius. And Judithan Stanton explains that Zeus hated the healer for encroaching on divine territory because when he was bringing people back from the dead, he was essentially performing a miracle, which should only be something that can be performed by a god. And here he was blurring the line between mortals and gods. Now, Stephen Fry tells it a little differently in Mythos. 
and here Aesculapius actually wins the support of Athena when he heals an injured snake, which is one of her chosen animals. So by way of thanks, she gives him a jar of Gorgon blood. Now whether she knows what the blood can do or not at this point is really quite moot, but either way, Aesculapius discovers that it can raise the dead. And he continues his healing, continues his medical practice, but he also starts resurrecting the dead as well. And it's actually Hades who gets quite annoyed with this. And he then goes to Zeus bemoaning the unnatural state of affairs because humans are supposed to live, die and enter the underworld. That's how it works. In this case, though, they're living, dying and then living again. So Hades is essentially being cheated of additional souls. Now, Zeus does agree that Aesculapius has overstepped the mark at this point, and despite Apollo's protestations, because this is obviously his son, Zeus kills him with a thunderbolt. But such is the general respect for the healer that Zeus then places him in the heavens. And we're about to take a little bit of a detour, but it is relevant, because Aesculapius, as the constellation, then actually becomes Ephiacus, the snake bearer. And Ephiacus has caused quite the commotion recently because of the fairly inaccurate story that's been doing the rounds about NASA apparently discovering a 13 star sign. And there have been people absolutely losing it online going, oh my God, I can't be a Gemini, I'm a Cancer through and through, and all this kind of nonsense. And I'm going to explain to you why it's nonsense. Is Ephiacus a zodiac sign or not? So should all the signs get shunted around a little bit? And the short answer is no, because Ephiacus is a constellation. That's that's not under debate. It is a constellation, but it's not a star sign. And the trouble is the signs of the zodiac and constellations aren't actually the same thing. And I'm sure there are people out there who can explain this far better than I can. But in short, in Western astrology, which uses the tropical zodiac, the ecliptic, or in other words, the path of Earth's orbit around the sun, is divided into 12 segments. And each of these segments takes up 30 degrees of celestial longitude. And it roughly matches how far we travel each month. And these segments then become the signs of the zodiac. And the sun is then in front of each of these signs for about a month. But the constellations, on the other hand, are fixed. And they're dependent on the stars that make them up. And they're not all the same size and they actually don't always coincide with the zodiac signs at the same time. So the sun is in front of them for different periods of time. So you could have that the sun's in front of one actual constellation, but it's in a different sign. And the differences are essentially thanks to the procession of the equinoxes. And there's a very good article by Astrology Club, which I linked to from my blog post, who explained this better than I ever could. But that is why Aesculapius is quite timely because he does fit into this sort of non-new story, in my opinion, about Ephiacus the snake bearer. And bearing in mind, we do need to sort of think about this link between Aesculapius and snakes because they come in handy in his temples, which is what we're going to visit next. Now, temples to Aesculapius actually doubled as hospitals. And in some of the legends about them, they did actually have snakes just crawling around them. And if you wanted to be healed, you would take a pilgrimage to the temple. And then once you were there, you would make sacrifices if necessary, offer prayers and donate money. And temples were usually built near wells with healing powers or on hills outside a town. And the sanctuary of Epidaurus was also known as the Asclepion, and it became the most important temple of healing in ancient Greece. And people would actually seek both intervention by Aesculapius himself, or they would also look for medicines dispensed by his human priests. Now, this site was so important that a festival of music, sport and theatre was actually held there in his honour 
every four years. Now, other deities with the ability to heal did exist in Roman mythology, but many favoured Aesculapius due to his talent as a physician in life. So you might pray to another god to be healed and they'd heal you if they felt like it, but Aesculapius would take his role far more seriously and many believed that he did actually care about humans, although that could be his status as a demigod, i.e. you know, born of woman and god could be one of the reasons why he was more sympathetic to humans because he'd actually been one. And also, other deities would demand sacrifices or payments, whereas if you went to a temple of Escapius, you would sometimes go to sleep and then you would dream his instructions and then a priest would interpret whatever you had dreamed and then prescribe a ritual to help cure you. Bearing all this in mind, we're going to move forward to 292 BC, where plague is absolutely ravaging Rome and they had no idea how to stop it. And while ancient Greece was fascinated by medicine, in ancient Rome, doctors were seen as little more than craftsmen, which can be why it's so difficult to find a Roman equivalent to Aesculapius. So, being as how they didn't have a specific medicine-based god, they just simply Latinized Aesculapius's name and imported him. And they sent an envoy to Aesculapius's temple in Epidaurus that I mentioned earlier, and then this envoy returned with one of the sacred snakes. And it then left the boat at Tiber Island, so the Romans decided to found their first temple to Aesculapius there. There is some evidence that there was some worship of him in earlier times on the mainland in general, but this is his actual entry into Rome. And for Jehun Kim, the ability of the Romans to effectively steal Aesculapius from Greece proved Rome's primacy in the ancient world. And ancient Rome often would move to an area. And in some cases, they would sort of exchange gods with the local people. But in this case, they essentially just imported one of them. Now, I've mentioned the link between Aesculapius and snakes. And this is really important when we come to the rod of Aesculapius, because it's often confused with the caduceus. Now, the rod of Aesculapius is essentially a really long, quite thick scepter or staff, and there's a snake entwined around it. And the legends are very specific about the species of snake. It's an Elfe longissima, and apparently this is indigenous to southern Europe and totally harmless, and these were the ones that would live in his temples. And snakes represented healing and rejuvenation in ancient cultures, and you can see why with the ability to shed their skin. And some people actually thought they could sniff out herbs. By contrast, the caduceus or the winged rod is the symbol of mercury and that's the one that you might see with what looks like two snakes wrapped around it. Now, some people think that the link between mercury's caduceus and medicine actually dates to the 7th century AD when alchemists became linked with the hermetic art, Hermes being the Greek version of mercury. So when alchemy then started to include medicine and pharmacology, people adopted the caduceus as a medical symbol. But in all honesty, the rod of Aesculapius is the better choice due to its association with actual healing. Also, I should point out that Aesculapius did keep medicine in the family because two of his daughters are Hygieia, the goddess of health, and Panacea, goddess of the universal remedy. And you might recognise their names because obviously we do use hygiene now and Panacea is still a solution to all diseases and difficulties. And the original Hippocratic Oath actually started with the line, I swear by Apollo the physician and by Aesculapius and by Hygieia and Panacea and by all the gods. So they were actually in there originally. And we do have to bear in mind that while the Romans imported Aesculapius, they did also then export him and they took him to Roman Britain along with many other gods such as Fortuna and Oceanus and also Neptune as well. And obviously if you want to meet Fortuna, we met her in Fortune Teller Month a few months ago. 
Now, according to the website Roman Inscriptions of Britain, there are seven altar stones to Aesculapius in Britain, and he shares two of them with Fortuna and Hygieia. Obviously, the link with Hygieia makes a lot of sense. He's his daughter, and obviously hygiene and medicine go together. Fortuna, I can only assume it's to do with the idea of good luck and good fortune that your cure would work. And these altar stones are in Chester, Binchester, Bath, Carlisle, South Shields and Lanchester. Obviously South Shields being the one nearest to me. And the altar there was actually a gift to the god from Publius Vibolius Secondus. And John P. Alcock actually notes the popularity of Aesculapius among soldiers, which would explain his presence at forts like Chester. And doctors also unsurprisingly favoured him. And this is one of the things that you do find with a lot of the gods in Roman Britain, they're generally ones that soldiers would like and they appear in the forts and so on, particularly on Hadrian's Wall, which is obviously why you might assume I've got a personal interest in them, because obviously I'm near Hadrian's Wall. And when the cult of Aesculapius then spread throughout the empire, his shrines turned into spas, and it's not surprising that a lot of these spas used thermal springs. So I do quite like the idea that essentially people would originally have gone to a temple of Aesculapius and then they're going to a spa instead. And that said, in Britain, you would more likely encounter Aesculapius in one of the Roman military hospitals, and one was actually discovered at Chester. But despite being in a military outpost, it actually provided care for the sick, not injured soldiers. And I should finish off with the tendency of his priests to prescribe diet changes or more exercise does kind of make Aesculapius a bit of a herald of today's healthy eating culture. He is, as you might have gathered by my slightly excitable tone when talking about him, one of my favourite deities and I think it's a shame that he's not as widely thought of now as he was. If you head over to my blog post, the link is in the show notes below, there's a whole load of paintings of him including one by John William Waterhouse of him in temples and people going to see him and trying to get help and so on. There's also the link to the article about Ephiacus as well in case you're worried about this whole 13th zodiac sign or just curious how it actually works. Next week we're going to have a look at unusual folk remedies these probably will be from british folklore because i've got better access to it and obviously i'm in britain but if you do have any other requests for health and medicine and that kind of thing as well please do let me know and i'll add those to the list for this month as well otherwise i hope you have a marvelous week ahead and i will see you soon cheerio thank you for listening to this week's episode i hope that you enjoyed it if you did, feel free to subscribe using whichever podcast app it is that you prefer. If you do use iTunes, if you could leave me a review, that would be fab. Basically, it just means iTunes are more likely to recommend this to other people. And if you're interested in more folklore, please feel free to swing by my blog, which is www.icsedgwick.com. And that's Sedgwick spelled S-E-D-G-W-I-C-K. And you can find all of the links, images and other bits and pieces that hopefully you enjoy. So have an absolutely fab week ahead and I'll see you soon. Cheerio!